Well, let's go to God's Word. We need it this morning. The passage that Bonnie just read, 1 Corinthians 16. Whether we're doing well with the Lord this morning or whether we're struggling. Some of us here this morning are, study, are struggling tremendously. And we are wrestling with confusion or chronic pain or emotional struggles. We ask that God's Word would be vivid and alive today and speak to us clearly. If you are visiting with us, we are concluding today a four-month series in this letter to the Corinthians. We've learned that the city of Corinth, that Paul's writing to this church in, was a large, bustling seaport in southern Greece. <clears throat> it sat on an isthmus, which means it had two ports. Here, Roman power met Greek culture. And it was mixed with Oriental mysticism and Gnostic spirituality. I like the way that <clears throat> N.T. Wright puts it. He said this, he said, A glance through 1 Corinthians is like a stroll down a busy street. All of life is there. Squabbles and lawsuits. Sex and shopping. Rich and poor. Worship and work, wisdom and folly, politics and religion. That's a great summary of ancient Corinth and of this book. <clears throat> it was here in this city of uh, this cauldron of syncretism and sensuality that one of the very first churches in Europe was planted. Right about 51 or 52 AD. But sadly, a church that was soon torn apart by false doctrine, and by sexual sin, and by infighting. And that brings us to this letter and to the last chapter. In the final chapter, Paul is sort of circling back, and he's giving us three important priorities for every true follower of Jesus. Now, not everybody in this church was a true follower of Jesus, just like nobody in any church is. Uh, it's not uniform, in other words. There's not all believers are all unbelievers. Every church is a mixture of believers and unbelievers. And that's true in Corinth. It's true with other churches Paul planted. And it's true with our own church here. Some of you are passionate followers of Christ. Some of us here this morning are Christian in name only. Some of us here this morning, we're not at all there yet. And a few of us here this morning are living lives of deception and even might be wolves in sheep's clothing. Every congregation has this mixture. That's who Paul is writing to here. We're going to look at the three priorities that he is addressing to true believers. And they are, one, about money. And then two, about open doors, which is a very interesting conversation. And then three, about people. And this is how he chooses, this is how the Holy Spirit led Paul to wrap up this letter. First of all, about money. Paul begins this final chapter with a very bold challenge to every true follower of Jesus about how they should approach giving and sacrificial giving especially, verses 1 to 4. He says, now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. So in other words, this is a teaching that Paul has given in many churches. On the first day of every week, interesting, the Greek text there says on the Sabbath, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up. 
so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your offering to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. The principle here and in other parts of the Bible is simply this. As our income increases, our giving is also to increase. In other words, God doesn't just prosper us to raise our standard of living. He prospers Christians also to raise their standard of giving. And Jesus spoke a lot about money, more than heaven and hell. The Bible speaks a lot about money. What's sobering is the Bible says this, that that our attitude about money, especially when it comes to giving and sacrificial giving, is a direct window into our relationship with God. In fact, Jesus goes even a little bit further and says our attitude towards money is a direct pipeline into our heart. All it does is show what's really inside us, how we're treating money, how we're giving money, how we're spending money, how we're using money is simply an open window into our heart. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That direct link between treasure and our heart. Now these first couple verses here answer three common questions about sacrificial giving. Let's look at them. Number one, who is it that should give? Paul says, each one of you. By saying each one of you, he's talking about true born-again Christians, those who have been genuinely converted, are born again. God's Spirit is alive in them. They're not just professing Christians, they are possessing Christians. This is for them. That's for, you know, Christ here this morning, this is for you. Secondly, when should we give? Here Paul is also very clear, on the first day of the week. Again, it says each Sabbath. The Sabbath switched to Sunday. Sabbath doesn't mean Saturday or Sunday, it means stop. Shabbat in Hebrew just means stop. So it's to be a regular ongoing thing and it's clear it's not just for the Corinthian church here because Paul said this is for the Galatian churches. This was a common theme and it was a common theme in the Old Testament too. Regular giving of our finances. Third question is one that we wrestle with more because let's be honest we're greedy and stingy at heart. All of us are. How much should we give? Paul says, verse 2, I'm going to read from the NIV. The NIV says, each of us should set aside a sum of money in keeping with our income. The English Standard Version says each of you should put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. The whole point is proportional giving. Sometimes people say, hey, New Testament, isn't that just about giving whatever we want? Well, no, it's not about just giving whatever we want. But if you really want to go just New Testament, it's more radical than tithing in the Old Testament. It builds on tithing. You say, well, what's tithing? A lot of us know what it is. Some of us don't. Tithing is a Hebrew word, tithe. It means tenth. Sometimes I'll hear people say, yeah, I'm up to like 3% when it comes to my tithing. That doesn't make any sense. Linguistically, the word tithe is a Hebrew word that means tenth. Tenth. So if you're giving a tenth and you're only giving 3%, you're not giving a tithe. (laughs) Or I'm not giving a tithe. But it's very clear that proportional giving that Paul teaches here, it builds on the Old Testament concept of tithing, which is taught throughout 
the Old Testament, probably the most significant passage. Some of you know it, some of you don't, you're newer to the Bible. Go back to the book of Malachi, it's the last book of the Old Testament, right before the book of Matthew. Some of us know this book very well. Even if you've read it many times, the promise in it is stunning. And I want to show you something about that promise because it's rooted in a clear doctrine of who God is. Some of us have never read Malachi. Malachi, last book of the Old Testament. If you can't find that, use your index. Right before the book of Matthew. Chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 6 through 10. Tithing is talked about in several spots in the Old Testament to give a tenth of our income. It is a command in Scripture. It comes up in Deuteronomy on several occasions. Malachi here is picking up on that and has this rather incredible passage. And I want you to know it all goes back to theology. It all goes back to who God is. I, the Lord, verse 6, do not change. So sacrificial giving... And the promise of blessing that comes out of it is rooted in the nature of God. We call this the doctrine of immutability, that God does not change. There's a similar verse in the New Testament. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's blazoned across the altar up at Moody Memorial Church, up above their altar. I, the Lord, do not change, so you descendants of Jacob are not destroyed ever since the time of your ancestors. You have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me. Notice the promise. And I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. You ask, how are we to return? Some of you are asking that question today. You've wandered away from the Lord. You've wandered into sin. You're wondering, how do I come back to God? It's a very common question. How do we return? Malachi gives them one answer. Part of that answer is in our money to begin with. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. You ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse. Your whole nation, because you are robbing me, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. There may be food in my house. Test me. The only time in the Bible God says, test me. Go ahead. Put me to the test says the Lord Almighty, and see if I do not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing on you, you won't know what to do with it all. Now, the concept of blessing is a little tricky in the Bible. Why? Because in the Old Testament, blessing is primarily, not exclusively, but primarily described in physical terminology, physical terms. And this can be true today, by the way. It could be God's special favor due to your obedience, God's special favor on your finances or your health or your marriage or your parenting or your children or your career or your ministry or your relationships. That's true in the Old Testament, it's true in the New Covenant, it's true today. But in the New Testament, when we come to the New Testament, blessing is primarily described in spiritual terms. Primarily. There's the blessing that a Christian has the moment they come to faith, like they are elect, forgiven, adopted, placed in union with Christ, the Holy Spirit in them. Those are blessings that we have as a believer. Then there's blessing that is promised to a believer based on our obedience. You say, like what? Joy. I read a great sermon 
by Charles Spurgeon this last week about the oil of joy that's available that so many Christians neglect when they're going through difficult times. The oil of refreshment from the Holy Spirit that is conditional on obedience and asking for it. What other blessing is available to believers? Healed relationships, peace, or grace to suffer well. There's all sorts of blessing available for those who seek the Lord in our obedience. Malachi's point, the principle of the Old Testament, principle of the New Testament is obedience brings blessing. And you can't just say, well, it's just only this kind of blessing. That's the heresy of the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel, which is all over television, says all blessing can be boiled down to one thing, money. Unfortunately, Jesus, as he talks about money in the New Testament, almost always presents it as a curse, not a blessing. God's blessing can be on our finances, but to reduce all blessing to money and the growing pile of money is simply unbiblical. In fact, it's dangerous. Blessing is a broad umbrella and a broad category. And the point is you want blessing written over your house, not curse. Now, here's another common question. Let's just address the elephant in the room. Anytime you talk about tithing, 10%, proportional giving, especially tithing, the question comes, well, isn't that, and it's usually asked this way, isn't that just an Old Testament thing for the Jews? Like, everything written in the Old Testament has somehow no bearing on us today, which is just, there's a Hebrew word for that, nutso! Paul is very clear, Romans 15, verse 4. Everything written in the past was written to teach us so that through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. To just write off the Old Testament is dangerous. There is a movement today among American evangelicalism to detach the Old Testament, to remove ourselves and distance ourselves. Friends, that's foolish. It's unbiblical. It's unwise. It's ungodly. It's stupid and it's ridiculous. We need the Old Testament. It's two-thirds of our Bible, is one of my Hebrew professors would say. In fact, if you do the chronological reading of your Bible, and you start in Genesis in January, and you slowly read through, you will not even get to the New Testament till about October. Now, are there parts of the Old Testament or the Mosaic Law that don't apply today? Sure. And we get hints of that in the New Testament. But there's nothing in the New Testament that just says, look, you throw that half, you know, that, three, that two-thirds away. That's... That's ridiculous. It's, it's unbiblical, and there's no precedent for it in church history. So back to the question, isn't this just something in the Old Testament? Well, the, the answer is this was not just in the Old Testament for the Jews. How do I, why do I say that? Because tithing shows up before there were any Jews. <laughs> it shows up in Genesis 14. Just like the Sabbath shows up before there were any Jews. Tithing and the Sabbath both show up before there were any Jews, before there was any nation of Israel, before there were any Israelites. All that the law did was reinforce Sabbath or reinforce tithing or add some things to it, but it didn't obliterate, it didn't, it didn't create it, in other words, and it didn't start there. In fact, Jesus mentions tithing even in the New Testament. He was criticizing the Pharisees and some of the leaders, and he rebuked the religious leaders for tithing, but lacking justice and mercy at the same time. And he said, you should do the former and not neglect the latter. In other words, you should be tithing, but you should be doing it, also displaying justice and mercy. 
All that the New Testament does is build on the Old Testament tithe and teaches that actually tithing is a floor, not a ceiling. Should be a beginning point, 10% of what we earn should be given back to God in His local church. And then adding on to that, our income as it grows should lead to an increase in giving. By the way, proportional giving is also taught in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 16, 17, each of you should bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. Go back to verse 6 for a minute, Malachi. I told you this is all things theology. Everything Everything goes back to theology. The command to tithe is rooted in the Bible's teaching that God is faithful. That's what. So if you're here this morning and you know Christ and you're a believer, I want this just to fill you with encouragement. The command to tithe is grounded in the teaching that God is faithful. I, the Lord, do not change. Then we get into the passage about tithing. That's why when you get saved and the Holy Spirit begins to work from the inside out, these crazy desires start showing up like you want to obey God and it doesn't seem like a burden anymore. And you start seeing that these commands, rather than just being a ball and chain and a nuisance, are actually rooted in the character of God and actually bring life and joy into your life. And this one here is rooted in God's immutability. Everything goes back to theology. So here's the question. Kids, here's your question. Teens, young people, here's your question. Adults, here's your question. Do you believe that God will honor your obedience when it comes to tithing and sacrificial giving. It's that simple. Do you believe he's unchanging and that he still blesses the obedience of his people? People Malachi were writing to were acting on, they're acting like a lot of us today, I've acted this way, they were acting like this. The only way to get ahead in life is going to be if I rob God, hoard my money, and keep it generally for myself. It's a premonition as old as mankind. And the tragedy is, in the very, hear this, in the very act of clinging to their money, which is that's what they're doing, the very act of clinging to my money, they, I am undermining God's blessing on my life. In the very act of them clinging to their money, of robbing God, thinking somehow in their crazy thinking that this was helping them get ahead financially, they were robbing themselves a blessing. And the same tragedy exists today. In every church, liberal or mainline or Bible-centered, you have the same thing. You have, especially in Bible-teaching churches, here's here's a sad scenario. You have sincere Christians genuinely born-again people who are desperate. Some of you here this morning are desperate for God to show up in a situation that feels utterly hopeless, right? Some of us are in situations right now that just feel hopeless, and we're desperate for God to show up, and we're desperate for God's blessing on our finances, or on a, one of our kids, or on a marriage situation, or family, or parenting, or, or, or on our lives, or on our ministries. We're desperate for God to show up, but we're directly undermining His blessing by how we're using our money. That's the great tragedy. You can be obedient in many realms of your life, but if we're disobedient when it comes to our finances and our sacrificial giving, we will directly undermine God's blessing 
on our lives. It's true of me, it's true of you, it's true of them. That's why Paul, again, talks about it. But he didn't talk about it nearly as much as Jesus did. The second area that Paul drills down on in chapter 16 is the priority of paying attention to open doors. This is interesting. Verses 5 through verse 9. Paul talks about paying attention to open doors of ministry that will suddenly, and I'll quote-unquote, open up. Open doors of opportunity. After I go through Macedonia, which is just north of Greece, I will come to you. I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. Verse 7, for I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. It's the same thing James says. Don't say we're going to do this or that tomorrow. Always add, but if the Lord wills. Verse 8, but I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost. That was over in western Turkey. It was all the way across the Aegean Sea. But I want you to notice why he's staying on in Ephesus. I will stay on in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? Because a great door of effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. Opposition goes with pastoral ministry. It goes with missions. When you step into ministry, when you step into leadership, you step into opposition. It goes with the territory. Because our enemy is not other people. Our enemy is the evil one and his legions of demons who are out to strategically undermine and attack the people of God. But the point here is Paul is very aware that sometimes God just opens doors or closes doors. You see this throughout his writing. And the point here is to be aware that when a door opens, a door of ministry, a door of opportunity, to step through and take it, even if we're terrified. You say, well, how do I know? Well, you go back to the time-honored methods of discerning God's will, which are what? Scripture, prayer, wise counsel, fasting. It's amazing how many of God's people don't fast. When Jesus said, when you fast, do it this way, do it that way in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm, uh, it's interesting, even we're not even tuned to hear it. I'll talk to people. This happened on many occasions with me. And they'll be sharing a prayer request and something that they're desperate for. And I'll say, have you, have you fasted and prayed? And I'll get a response. I've heard this multiple times. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've been praying about it a lot. I said, that's not what I asked. I said, are you fasting and praying? Oh, I don't, I, I've never fasted. Friends, we are robbing ourselves without, you know, when we don't use a clear tool in the Scriptures. Time-honored ways of finding God's will, especially when we're desperate. Scripture, prayer, wise counsel, and fasting. Paul here is very clear that there are times that God just opens doors. 2 Corinthians 2.12 When I came to Troas with the gospel of Christ, a door opened for me. Or you got verse 9 here, a wide door of effective work is opened for me. We see this in the book of Acts where doors open for Paul and then close for Paul. We have no ability to predict what the Holy Spirit's going to do. He sovereignly opens some individual hearts and minds. He sovereignly opens some areas for gospel ministry or for other opportunities. On the other hand, the Bible says sometimes he closes hearts and minds of certain individuals. 
and he closes doors and opportunities in other ministries. For example, in Acts 16, the Holy Spirit closes the door in Bithynia. John 12, Jesus said this about God closing or blinding. He says, God has blinded the Jews' eyes. This wasn't the devil, this is God. God has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Romans 9 talks about closed doors. It says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. There's God's affections on Jacob in the womb and not on Esau. That's how sovereign election works. One of my favorite illustrations of open and closed doors, I've used it on occasion here. It's a missions illustration. Came from a biography our family read out loud together years ago. And what's interesting is as we do family chit-chat, this particular story still comes up in our family. It had that kind of an impact on our kids and on us because it's a reminder of God's sovereign ways and what he does, he does in his own good timing and will. And it has to do with David Brainerd. You say, well, who's David Brainerd? David Brainerd was a young missionary to Native American Indians back in the 1740s and 50s. David Brainerd died of age, at age only 29 of tuberculosis. Almost became Jonathan Edwards' son-in-law, but he died before that happened. He was dating, sort of dating. That's not really a term back then, but he was affectionate with Jerusha, Jonathan Edwards' daughter, who tended with him until he died of tuberculosis. David Brainerd went to Yale, got kicked out, ended up, on the mission field in New England, working with Native American tribes. And there's a story over a couple-year period from 1743 to 1745 that is one of the best stories I've ever heard about opening closed doors. In 1743, as he set out, and he kept a meticulous journal, by the way, and Jonathan Edwards took his journals after he died at age 29 and had him published, and it became effectively one of the very first missionary biographies in Western culture that is still in print and has had a huge impact on hundreds of people going to the mission field, and still does. Jim Elliott, the great missionary who was martyred in Ecuador in 1957, said that journal of David Brainerd had a huge impact on him, Jim and Elizabeth Elliott. But in 1743, Brainerd goes to an area in Massachusetts called Kiwanameek and begins to share the gospel for a year. He works among some tribes there, sharing the gospel, preaching the word. He's dying of tuberculosis. And... Guess what happened after a whole year of preaching and doing ministry there? Absolutely nothing. He was very discouraged. Talks about it in his journals. 1744, the next year, he leaves Kiwanameek there in Massachusetts, and he goes to an area north of Philadelphia called the Forks of the Delaware. There he spent another year preaching. Same stuff. If anything, he's just weaker because he's continuing to deteriorate from tuberculosis, but he preaches the same sermons pours himself into it, writing in his journals, and there, just like in Kiwanameek and the Forks of the Delaware among the tribes there, absolutely nothing. And then in 1745 in the summer, weaker yet, he hears about a tribe of Native Americans 85 miles south in Crossweeks in New Jersey. And so he goes there. Same sermons, same effort, same prayer, same everything. And God showed up. And within a year, there were 130 baptized in that tribe. You say, well, what's the difference? I don't know. 
God decided to open hearts and open a door there, and he did not in Kiwanameek or the Forks of the Delaware. Why? Because he's God. And that's Paul's point. It brings us to the verse that every American loves to hate, which is Romans 9.18. Therefore, Paul says, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. We hate that in the West. We forget that the first part of it is a promise of great joy. He has mercy. (laughs) He has mercy on some. All of us are born in sin. All of us are spiritual rebels. All of us are on our way to hell. And God chooses to have mercy on his elect. What a promise and a privilege. Instead of growling at it and bristling at it and fighting it, we should be thankful that God has mercy on some. And Paul was very aware. God opens hearts, he closes hearts. He opens doors, he closes doors. And we just need to have the courage and wisdom to walk through the open ones and the courage and wisdom when to stop when a door is closed and realize he's redirecting us a different direction. I've done what you've done. I've kept pounding on the door when it's closed. Rattled that doorknob, pounded on it. This has got to be God's will. I know this way is God's will. And it just never happens. And then all of a sudden over here, a door opens. It's like, oh, what's that? And the way we go in God's will. It's the mystery of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Lastly, Paul talks about people, verses 10 to 24. Paul's letters often close like this. It's so cool because Paul clearly valued team ministry. He valued people. And at the end of his letters, he often listed people that he was indebted to, that he was dependent on, or who he was praying for. It's very clear this guy's not a lone ranger in any sense of the term. Look at verses 10 and 11. When Timothy comes, see to it. He has nothing to fear while he's with you, for he's carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. That was one of Paul's converts, one of his, his, his young mentees, Timothy. Uh, he mentored him and left him in Ephesus to become the pastor there. Verse 11, no one then should treat him with contempt. He said that because Timothy was young. Paul also mentored a young guy named Titus, left him on the island of Crete. Timothy got Ephesus. Titus got Crete. Titus got the better deal, I think. So Crete's a lot prettier than Ephesus. But hey, he mentored young men and would lead them, lead them along the way. Paul invested in people. He also was dependent on people for giving and for finances. Look at verses 17 to 20. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortianus, Achaeus arrived. He starts just mentioning people. In verse 19, in the Churches in the province of Asia, they send their greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly. All the brothers and sisters, verse 20, send their greetings to you. So even though Paul was an apostle, he was never a celebrity superstar lording it over others below him. In fact, if you go to the book of Acts, I like the word and that shows up. We read of Paul and Barnabas, even though they had a really big disagreement at one point. Paul and Barnabas were brothers In ministry, we read about Paul and Silas, Paul and Luke, Paul and Aristarchus, Paul and Mark, Paul and Titus, Paul and Timothy. Paul believed and valued team ministry. It's a biblical, it's a very non-American thing. I'm thankful here for the team ministry we have with our elders and our staff and a lot of our lay leaders. It is a very healthy team camaraderie we have here. And Paul valued it greatly. At the end of Romans, 
He lists a long list of co-workers at the last, in Romans 16. Uh, 24 different individuals and two entire households are listed as co-laborers in Christ. The, the whole principle is this. Healthy biblical ministry is collaborative ministry. It needs to be said right now when we have a lot of Lone Ranger celebrity pastors, unfortunately, in the last 10 years that have just crashed and burned. Healthy biblical ministry is collab- true collaborative ministry. It doesn't mean that one doesn't have authority over others. It, it, it is not a statement about org charts and who's. It's a statement about dependence and mutual ministry together, praying together, really working together and serving together. It is a very biblical thing. Jesus modeled it and Paul modeled it. All right, got to land this airplane. We got to land this baby. I'm going to come back to the summons I started with four months ago. And instead of just doing a summons from this chapter, I want to step back and say, okay, once again, what is it Paul's summoning us to in the book of 1 Corinthians in this letter? And so I want to circle back and give three very clear ringing summons. Young people, you with me? That come out of this, this letter to 1 Corinthians. Ready? Number one. Are you sure you are truly born again? Or let me put it a different way. The summons is this. Beware of the danger of being a counterfeit Christian. Counterfeit believers, counterfeit Christians sit in every congregation. And there's a clear passion Paul has when he talks about things like examine yourself. Make sure you're in the faith that he is warning us. That it is easy to sit in a church. It's easy to go to youth group. It's easy to be in a choir. It's easy to sit in a Bible study and be absolutely unconverted. The Puritans had a huge concern about this. About sitting in church, opening Bibles, doing all the stuff, and being right on our way to hell. Because we've never surrendered to Christ as Lord. And that's Paul's concern. Jesus had the same concern when he looked at Nicodemus. You say, who was Nicodemus? Well, Nick was one of the religious leaders. He was one of the big boys in ancient Israel. The people looked up to the Pharisees. They esteemed him. These were the special forces of Judaism. These were the highly esteemed religious upper crust. Everyone looked to the Pharisees in awe of who they were. And Jesus Talking to one of them who was on the Jewish Supreme Council, the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus, no doubt who had great status in that country, and in essence told him in John 3, you're on your way to hell, by the way. BTW, dude, you're on your way to hell because you've never been born again. And then he chides him for not understanding what he's talking about because Nicodemus had no clue what he meant. He's Give some ridiculous answer about uh, how do you do that? Climb in your mother's womb, come out a second time? I mean, and Jesus chides him. Why is he chiding him? Because it's in the Hebrew Bible. This isn't new stuff. Jesus wasn't inventing something new. In books like Ezekiel and stuff, it talks about spiritual rebirth. He should have known about the Holy Spirit's ministry of rebirth. Are you born again? Is there any chance you're a counterfeit Christian? Young people, any chance you're faking it? Or worse yet, just living a life of blatant deception. Is there any chance, adults, you might be a wolf in sheep's clothing? 
Do you know the real Jesus? There is a false Jesus. There's many false Jesuses. There's only one real Jesus. And when you're born again and the Holy Spirit takes over, you have new desires, new theology, you're a new creature in Christ, you have new attitudes, new behaviors, and you have a new joy and a new peace. And you have new light in your eyes because you're one with Christ. That's the first concern. Beware of being a counterfeit Christian. Second concern coming out of 1 Corinthians is this. If you really know Christ, make sure you remember you're in a battle with sin and that it is a war. Billy Sunday, the great evangelist, I love his quote. I've used it before. I'll keep using it. I love it. He said, most Christians treat sin like a cream puff and not a rattlesnake. They just look at it as something that's sort of easy or delicious rather than a rattlesnake. True Christians are no longer under the controlling power of sin, but they are under the influence of sin. If you have any doubt, all you can do is read Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 25, where you have one of Paul's greatest autobiographical sections about his struggle with sin as a mature believer. Romans 8.13, he said, you, talking to Christians, have to kill sin in your life. The great Puritan John Owen, not only great Puritan, great theologian, wrote a whole set of sermons based on Romans 8.13, kill sin. It came out as a small booklet called The Mortification of Sin. 1 Corinthians calls us to kill sin in our life. 1 Corinthians calls me, calls you, if you know Christ, to remember that if I give in to temptation, if I give in to sin, lots of things are going to happen and they're all bad. It reminds me of the terrible consequences of not killing sin in my life and what's at stake if I don't. What will happen if I give in to sin, give in to temptation, And to remember that I might destroy my marriage in the process. I might destroy my reputation in the process. I might destroy my ministry, my health, my children, my joy, my family, my spouse. On and on it can go if I choose to give in and indulge in sinful patterns in my life. I need to be reminded that 1 Corinthians issues a sobering call, especially in chapter 11, about examining ourselves when it comes to the Lord's Supper. The last summons coming out of this letter. You cannot read 1 Corinthians and not come away with this. We are called, true Christians are called to have a high view of the local church. In theology, the doctrine of the church is called ecclesiology. It comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which means the church, a gathering. It's not a building, it's the gathering, it's the body of Christ. Americans are notorious for having a low ecclesiology. What's that mean? Well, that... I'll fit, I'll fit it in if I have time on Sunday. Interesting that the Evangelical Free Church of America, when it comes to capital campaigns and identifying, okay, who's a regular attender, who's not a regular attender, a regular attender used to be someone who was in church three out of four Sundays. They have downgraded it in the Evangelical Free Church, in their official literature now, to a regular attender being someone who attends two out of four Sundays. Ladies and gentlemen, that is not a regular attender. (laughs) That is not a regular attender. That is not someone that values the local church. That is not someone honoring the Sabbath day and keeping it holy. And what we do, our kids are going to do. 
No great rocket science. If I come to church on occasion when it fits in my schedule, sit down and leave, and that's all they see, I never talk about it at home, I never bring up spiritual things, I never talk about the Bible, I don't engage my kids on a spiritual level, I don't disciple them, I don't catechize them. I tell you what's going to happen to them. They're going to walk away from the church as soon as they go to college and leave it behind. Why? Because I haven't modeled it for them. I have not had a high ecclesiology. I've given into my culture and simply treated it as an add-on. Ladies and gentlemen, young people, the bottom line is the church is a big deal to Jesus, it's a big deal to Paul, and it needs to be a big deal to us. You know how Jesus describes the church? His bride. His bride. That's not a term of affection. I don't know what is. The local church needs to be a priority in our lives, and Paul has a very high ecclesiology here. And he wants us to know Jesus is jealous for his church, its unity, its purity, its leadership, its biblical focus, and its gospel-centeredness. And so may we stay vigilant, may you stay vigilant to that end. This is a great letter. In August, by the way, as far as coming attractions, go to theater, you like coming attractions, we're going to be doing a four-week series called Angels and Demons, not based on Dan Brown's novel, but based on Scripture. Might get a few digs in at Dan Brown along the way, but we're going to be basing it on Scripture, and then also we're going to do a short series in the book of Jonah coming up after that, so some good stuff coming our way. Let me lead us in prayer, and then we're going to sing. Father, we want to close this series by thanking you for this man, the Apostle Paul, a man who, by his own description, was the chief of sinners, just like us, no different than us, and yet a man who loved you, was passionate about your kingdom, regularly put himself in death's way to advance the kingdom of Christ. I pray today for those here who are hungry for you, that you would pull them forward. Pray for those today here who are blinded in their sin, that you would open their eyes. Even pray for some here today who might be wolves in sheep's clothing, that you would change their course and bring them to saving faith in Jesus. We thank you for this book. We thank you for inspiring people like the Apostle Paul to write these letters that are the inspired Word of God. Father, I pray for our church. Thank you that we have godly elders and godly staff. Help us to stay on track and be a gospel witness in our area along with other gospel churches. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.